generative AI is here and it has changed the rules of the game. Experts like Seth Godin and Robert McKee have been very clear. The authors who are going to make it in this business are those who are writing truly amazing, knock-your-socks-off innovative stories. The bar is that high. AI will replace mediocre writers. But at some point, everybody is mediocre. So what do you do? You educate yourself. And the good news is that there's still time, but you've got to start leveling up right away. I'm Valerie Francis, and I've got a series of webinars to help you do just that. My specialty is helping authors like you put theory into practice. Understanding the tools of our trade and being able to apply them with precision is no longer an option. It's an absolute necessity. So go to valeriefrancis.ca slash webinars for more information and sign up for the notifications. You can't afford not to. If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched No Way Out so that we can study conflict. This 1987 film was directed by Roger Donaldson from a screenplay by Robert Garland based on the book Big Clock by Kenneth Fearing. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And if you have not seen No Way Out, there is definitely a spoiler here. So (laughs) forewarned is forearmed. And please help other writers find our show by leaving us a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page, scroll to the bottom, click the five stars. It's that simple. All right, Melanie, what inspired going all the way back to the 1980s? (laughs) Well, it wasn't the music. (laughs) Or the cinematography. Oh, the cinematography. No, I, I chose this film for a very specific reason, and that's because it has some good examples of how to create conflict. And that doesn't mean that I'm saying that this is a great movie. You know, I don't think it's weathered well. Um, But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from one or two good aspects of the film overall. So, so far this season, I've broken down the external and internal conflict by looking at each character's wants, needs, the forces of antagonism, so the obstacles, and what um, the characters stand to lose, so the stakes. I will do that again this episode, but this time... The characters have several relationships that create what I'm calling conflict triangles. Now, there are lots of scenes with three characters who all have opposing wants, and these characters have different stakes, but their wants are in direct conflict with each other, and I think that this makes for very interesting conflict creation in the story. Now, let's look at Bryce's conflict first because he's really the one who sets this whole thing in motion. And I'll then go on to have a look at the other main characters 
and the conflict triangles that they create. Now, Bryce is a political appointee who has power aspirations and he wants to stop particular politicians from making capital acquisition decisions that he doesn't agree with. So he's the Secretary of the Department of Defence. Now, this is linked, all interlinked to this thing that the intelligence agencies have sort of created or believe exists is this Russian phantom submarine. So this sort of sets up the first bit of conflict in the movie. So the conflict triangle here is between Bryce, the secretary of the DOD, um, Senator Duval, and his assistant or his political aide and advisor, Marshall. Now, this type, this conflict at this point of the movie is really centred around political power. So that's one very interesting aspect of the conflict in this movie. And this is Bryce's external conflict at the start, but he actually has more conflict in his life. So there's the interpersonal conflict between himself, Susan and Pritchard, and Pritchard is Bryce's political advisor. Bryce wants Susan for personal gratification and in doing this he's actually putting his career on the line if the knowledge about his affair and, and Susan being his mistress becomes public. And Susan and her circle of friends who know about Bryce's affair are really the antagonists in this relationship. Now, Susan's want in this triangle, and I'm, I'm going to make some assumptions here because she's not necessarily a fully fleshed character, but her want is to live the life of a kept woman. So if she stops the relationship, she'll lose some of the carefree life that she lives and her force of antagonism is actually Bryce's power and also Pritchard, who disapproves of her and the risk that she puts into Bryce's life. Richard's want in this triangle is to be the power broker for Bryce because that gives him a level of power and it also gives him a reputation of the brains behind Bryce, which he wants to maintain. Now, if Bryce loses his power, then Pritchard loses his power too. Bryce's mistress is a threat to Pritchard's position just as much as it's a threat to Bryce's power. So this conflict is a combination of power and physical gratification. Now before I go on, I do just quickly want to mention that there are other conflict triangles in the story centred around relationships and there's obviously the one between Bryce and his wife and Susan but this doesn't feature very much, but it is part of the subtext of Bryce's world, even if it doesn't play out in any meaningful way. But they're, they're there and they exist and they sort of sit in the background, but they're not fully part of the story. Now, there are there is also a triangle between Tom, our main character, our protagonist, Bryce and Pritchard, due to Bryce's desire to outsmart Senator Duval. So Tom's job is to find out what information Duval gets from the CIA that gives him a level of power within knowledge power. Now, this all starts out, so this triangle between those three characters all starts out very hunky-dory because it's a promotion and a higher profile for our hero and um, it's all very good. 
but it does start to fall apart pretty quickly. And this is when Susan and Tom start a relationship. So this establishes another triangle between Susan, Tom and Bryce. Now this gives Susan and Tom internal conflict because they are in love, whereas Bryce's power over Susan is threatened. So the triangle creates tension in the story because we expect Bryce at some stage to find out that Susan has another lover and we expect him to react somehow. And he does. He reacts by killing Susan. It's just an accident apparently. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) we won't go into that. (laughs) And when Bryce does react by killing Susan, it actually creates another conflict or it escalates the conflict in other triangles and all of the conflicts then start to overlap and they create complications that escalate very quickly and the result is that it puts Tom's life further and further at risk. Now, the conflict between the people in the triangle is the result of one person's object of desire changing and the realisation of their stakes. And when I'm talking about this, I really do mean that triangle between Pritchard, Tom and Bryce. So when Bryce kills Susan, he moves closer to losing his power because he's murdered someone. And and it will become obvious or the information will get out that he's become an adulterer or that he has been an adulterer. Now, one of Bryce's conflict triangles has therefore tipped the balance so that all the others are now at risk. So it has escalated the stakes for all of the other triangles, relationship triangles in the story. Bryce's actions and the shift of his object of desire, so it's gone from gaining more power to maintaining his power by getting away with murder, this has created a shift in the conflict and in the other relationships that Bryce has. Now, Pritchard moves into action and starts to protect Bryce to protect himself. And in doing this, the CIA notices changes in the Department of Defence's behaviour, which then raises their suspicions that something's going on. Pritchard and Bryce concoct the story about Susan being murdered by some Russian sleeper spy which has a a ghost spy, which everyone knows as Yuri. And this changes the dynamic for Tom in multiple ways. So Tom's object of desire changes from wanting Susan to himself to wanting Bryce to pay for her murder. Now, this places Tom directly at odds with Pritchard and Bryce. So where their relationship triangle before was all mutually beneficial, it has now upset the balance and put them all at conflict with one another. Now, this movie relies very heavily on dramatic irony, and this is where the audience knows more than some of the characters in the story. And in this case, we know that Tom was Susan's lover And he is also the person that Bryce and Pritchard are trying to frame, not only for Susan's murder, but also to set him up as being the spy Yuri. Even though they're not aware of that, Bryce and Pritchard, we we are aware because we have a fuller picture of what's going on. Now, for me, 
the use and manipulation of information in a spy movie is a convention of the genre. In Tom's case, his identity as Susan's lover is a piece of information that he doesn't want people to know. And when he does share it with Sam, we can see how dramatic irony and the relationship triangles are used consistently to create conflict and to build tension in the story. Sam is Tom's friend and colleague, and he knows that Tom is acting strangely. So when Tom tells Sam about his relationship with Susan, there's a sense of relief. And Sam starts to delay the electronic identification of Tom from a photograph. However, Sam confides in Pritchard because he doesn't believe Tom's assertion that Bryce and Pritchard are creating a scapegoat. Now, noting that Tom and Pritchard's objects of desire are opposed, we understand just at that point what Sam has done. So he has given Pritchard a piece of evidence that he needs to get Bryce off the hook, and he's also given over Tom as the scapegoat. So this is an I think this is a really interesting way that the movie works and how we know pieces of information and are putting that together even if the characters don't know that don't know the same thing. We can see how that is revealed through the the course of the movie. Now, another good example of information creating conflict between three characters is in the scene where Pritchard and Tom visit Susan's friend Nina. Now, the conflict is created by understanding what each character wants in this scene and what they have at stake and understanding that each character is the other's force of antagonism. So, for example, Pritchard wants Nina to reveal the identity of Susan's secret boyfriend and if she doesn't hand it over, he threatens her with deportation. Now, all of this is linked to Pritchard's greater object of desire, which is to protect Bryce. Tom, on the other hand, doesn't want Nina to reveal him as Susan's secret boyfriend because he doesn't want to be framed and he wants Bryce to pay. Nina reveals that she knows Susan was Bryce's lover and she reveals that to Pritchard and she hides Tom's identity. So no matter what Nina does in this scene, she is going to put someone's life in danger, including her own. And again, dramatic irony works well in this scene because we know that Nina and Tom have met and we also know that Pritchard wants that information. We also know that Tom and Nina can't communicate about what's going on. So the tension is created by a combination of dramatic irony and the obstacles that stop Tom and Nina from communicating. Now, I won't go into some of the other conflicts included in this movie, but it is worth noting that I've tracked the following types of conflict. So there's interpersonal conflict. So the personal relationships between characters, including Tom and Pritchard, you know, who went to the Naval Academy together. So they're classmates, they have history, and there's also the romantic relationships. So it's an interesting observation of how all of that um, out-of-movie interpersonal relationships have been built or used in this particular um, story. 
There's also political conflict, which is represented by Bryce, Senator Duval and their lackeys. There's the interagency conflict. So there's the CIA versus the Department of Defence versus the FBI. So all of these agencies fight for resources and control of information, and they all want to protect their sources. There's also the conflict of spying, which is their want, a spy's want is always to avoid discovery. And when Tom is revealed as Yuri at the end of the film, this shines a different light on some of Tom's actions throughout the investigation. So on the other side of a spy not wanting to be captured, the fear that we see in the movie or we think that Tom is actually experiencing in the movie is the fear of a false accusation of being a spy. So that is a very difficult situation to get out of with a whole lot of agencies who are really keen to pin that label on you and are working against you. So I thought thought that that was really interesting, although you don't necessarily understand that until you get to the end of the film, you know, that it looks like Tom's trying to avoid being labelled as a spy when really he's a spy, even if it's all fabricated. But, um, you know, his want then is to avoid being discovered and I thought that that was very interesting, even if it wasn't necessarily extremely uh, well executed at certain points. But anyway, it's worthwhile watching in terms of the conflict. Now, there's also the investigation into Susan's murder, and we see Tom trying to pervert the investigation. We see that Pritchard is trying to frame Yuri or Tom to protect Bryce. And then there's the poor major who's just trying to execute his investigation. So there's a few things at stake here and the main one there is Tom's life and we have the hitmen or the black ops um, men who are there to assassinate whoever it is that Pritchard wants taken out at any particular time and we also see those um, that Bryce's and Pritchard's careers are at stake in, with that investigation as well. And I mentioned this at the top of the episode. So there's the, there's the phantom submarine that is used to instigate the conflict between Bryce and Duval, but it actually doesn't amount to very much in the movie. And I think that's disappointing. I think if you're going to actually put that in there, then something has to be realised later on. But anyway, it is a point. It's set up as the main point of conflict, even if it doesn't necessarily go anywhere. Now, No Way Out is very much a movie of its time and it has its flaws. However, it does create effective conflict by clearly defining each character's wants and what's at stake. It then creates the forces of antagonism by pitting each character's wants against the others. Now, this would become dull quickly if there were only two characters in each scene who oppose one another. So what the writers did was use conflict triangles to keep the conflict dynamic and also maintain tension and to keep us guessing about what's going to happen. So, yes, it has its flaws, but I found this a really fascinating way that conflict is built in this movie this week. So, Valerie, how did you go with cast design? It's really interesting to me that you and I have picked up on so many of the same things this week. 
I mean, I don't know why that surprises me. It happens a lot, um, but it's still fun when it happens. <laughs> and when it comes to cast design, everything you've said about the conflict triangles is right on the money. One of the key concepts of cast design, and I learned this from Stephen Pressfield, is to keep the cast as small as possible and to connect them in such a way that they can't easily walk away from one another. Because if a character can just leave when the going gets tough, then they will. <laughs> and then that's the end of your story, <laughs> whether you wanted it to be or not. <laughs> now, within this smallest possible cast, you create triangular relationships between the characters. And the thing that connects them, the thing that forms a triangle, is their object of desire. Now, Melanie, you just said all of this. It's ex you just came at it from the angle of conflict, whereas I've learned it initially from the angle of character development, because it's the conflict between characters that bring out the traits in the protagonist. Oh, I love story theory. Okay. Now... <laughs> This is not a new idea to anybody, but I'm willing to bet that 99.9% .9 of all of us have only ever applied it in one way, and that's to a love triangle. We all know what a love triangle is, and we all are used to seeing a love triangle as um, three people, but it could actually be, if you're writing a romance, if you've got um, the two lovers, then something has to pull uh, to form the third part of that triangle in order to create conflict between the two lovers, right? It could be, for example, that one of the lovers is really dedicated to their career and being in a relationship with this other person, it, it jeopardizes their career somehow. But anyway, it's the same concept of having a triangular relationship. It's that love triangle exists, er, their triangle exists everywhere. We're used to seeing it as a love triangle, but Melanie, as you've just very clearly stated, it works just as well in a movie like this. Um, and in fact, it's preferable. It's a really great way to, in, to create interest in your story because there's all these little pockets of conflict. And when you move one little thing, all of a sudden, all, it's like clockworks, right? You can't move one gear without all of the other gears moving. Oh, it's so good. Okay. When it comes to analyzing the cast design of No Way Out, um, as always, we got to start with the protagonist. And remember, the supporting cast exists to bring out the aspects of the protagonist's character. And ideally, it's not just any aspect. I mean, this is not random. What we want to do is bring out conflicting aspects or traits of the protagonist. This is how we dramatize the dimensions of a character. So we talk about uh, wanting to avoid exposition. Now, I don't think you have to avoid exposition. It has its place. It has a function and it can work really well in a story if you know how to use it. But you don't want to just tell the whole thing and say, well, Tom was a really big jerk to his girlfriend. I mean, that's boring. We want to see him be the really big jerk because it infuriates um, some of us among the audience. <laughs> um, so that's, that's sort of what the supporting cast is there. Susan's whole function is to show that side of Tom. No, I just want to take a little detour here because I've got a side note. 
As I have said many times in this season and elsewhere, Robert McKee defines the character dimension as a set of conflicting traits. And that's the whole thing I'm studying, right? However, something came up in our discussion last week on the full Monty that, I mean, honestly, I should have just sort of piped in and, and talked about it then, but I didn't. I let it go because I think we were running late. Uh, but it's been bothering me all week, so I have to circle back to it. <laughs> this idea of a dimension or a character with a dimension or a dimensional character, however we want to phrase it, this is an area that can get tangly really fast and it can create complete confusion because we don't all have the same understanding of what a dimension is. Now, I'm sticking to Robert McKee's use of the term because it's his theory about character development that I'm studying right now. So last week I highlighted the sets of conflicting traits within Gaz, played by Robert Carlyle. These are his dimensions as explained by Robert McKee. Now, Melanie, you commented last week that you think Dave, who's Gaz's you know, sidekick, his friend, you think that he's a much more dimensional character than Gaz. And you're not wrong, but you use the term dimension in a different way than I used it. And it's actually your use of the term that's a lot more common among writers. Dave's struggle is all about his self-esteem. It's internal. He's much more of an open wound than Gaz is, and he can seem like a much deeper character. So what I'm saying is that when a character's internal struggle is highlighted and they don't seem so superficial because Gaz does seem superficial, and this depth that we perceive as the reader or viewer, when we, when we see that depth, we describe it as dimensional right? We think a, a deep character is a dimensional character and there's nothing wrong with explaining a character that way or thinking of a character that way, but it's a different use of the word. So in other words, McKee is using it, the word dimension as a noun, but most of us tend to use it as an adjective. And I just wanted to chat about that for a little bit and, and touch on last week so that we didn't leave any confusion out there because I'm, I worry that it might've gotten confusing. Anyway, um, if it did get confusing, then hopefully this explains it a bit, helps clarify, you know, the muddy waters. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, it just highlights something that I keep saying over and over. We've got a, when we're learning story theory, one of the hardest things about it is that one concept can be described a whole bunch of different ways, and one word can be used to describe a whole bunch of different things. So we've, we will be doing ourselves a huge favor if we focus on the concept being discussed rather than the label on it. And that when we hear a term being used, and it seems like it's being used in a different way than we understand it, still go by the concept being discussed and sort of let the label go because there's no standards. All right, let's get back to No Way Out. I said that the supporting cast exists to highlight the set of conflicting traits within the protagonist. All right, so far so good, but here's the rub. Not all protagonists have conflicting traits. 
Not all characters have an internal shift or an arc, and they don't change. This is pretty common in action stories or thrillers or crime stories and what I call left-brained stories, because I don't know how else to describe them. And left-brained stories are any story that where the focus is on figuring out a puzzle of some sort. So spy stories are left-brained stories. Mysteries are left-brained stories. They're about solving the puzzle, not seeing the arc of the character. So if the character doesn't arc and the character has no dimension, in other words, the protagonist is flat, then what function does the supporting cast serve? Well, it's very simple. They're plot devices. And this is the case with No Way Out. Commander Tom Farrell is a flat character. Yes, there is a twist at the end that he is, in fact, a Russian spy, but that twist isn't a character dimension. It's, it's a twist. Like everything else in this movie, it's a plot device. Tom is an on-the-nose stereotype. I wonder if we thought of him as a stereotype in 87. I can't remember. We just took, I mean, I just accepted so much in 87. If I could go back and talk to my 17-year-old self, what a talking I'd give myself. Okay. I think I think we were bedazzled by Kevin Costner, to be honest. Oh, no. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I think he looks, in this, this is his first big break movie. And um, I think this is the one that sort of launched his career. So, yeah, I think there was a lot of distraction, even if you may not have. <laughs> He's no Hugh Jackman, let me just say that. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. See, this is this is the same thing that um some of the Marvel movies that some where they have Chris Hemsworth's abs splashed all over the screen to distract us from the fact that the scenes aren't working. I have no problem with that. I just think they should leave the abs up there a little longer so all of the moms in the audience can enjoy the moment. That's that's the only problem I have with it. Yes, I'm objectifying him. He got paid a lot of money to be objectified. I am sure he's fine with it. All right. Anyway, so Tom Farrell (laughs) is a flat character. Yes, there's the twist at the end, but it's a twist. Uh, And a twist like that, sir, having his true identity revealed, that's not a character dimension. That's a, a plot device. All right. That's an important distinction. Now, Melanie, I agree with your comment that this movie has not aged well. It was well-received at the time, but holy moly, it's like a B-movie now. Like, it's it's bad. It's bad. And it doesn't stand up to, one, multiple viewings, or two, a close first viewing. The plot holes, and yes, there's many of them, but then there's all these little glitchy things. I don't know what to call them. And they're pretty easy to spot. Like, for example, one of them is the problem with the whole Polaroid of Tom. In the photo, he's got his hands up, like, by his head, like he's um, trying to shoo her away or or say, don't take my picture, which is exactly what he's saying. But when Susan actually took the picture, Tom's hands weren't anywhere near his head. He was holding a pillow, and it was down. So his hands were sort of, like, you know, down by his legs. And it's, that's really glaring because when the picture comes up and his hands are by his head, I just thought, did I miss something? No, I didn't. It, it, like it was glaring enough that it took me out of the movie for a while. And then I just kind of went with it. But I had to go back and check. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, another glaring problem is uh, when Tom arrives back home to his apartment and he speaks to the building manager about the painting that the manager is uh, painting. And both of them are continuing to role play. And it makes no sense because they're the only two people in the room. The only other entity in the room is the camera, which is us. So for them to continue to role play the way they are means that they are aware of us in the room, which is stupid. All right, that's all I have to say about that. But the, the bigger problem for me is that it's not playing fair with the audience. And I think that's poor storytelling. Now, the other thing I wanted to say about this movie is that it doesn't seem to know what kind of story it wants to be. Melon, you just, I feel like I'm just repeating what everything you just said. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me to hear that partway into the filming of this, a brand new writer was brought in because it feels like the whole storyline shifts, goes in a whole different direction. Now, I think that Tom always was supposed to be the spy, but I think the original idea was that he was there to steal the plans for the Phantom Submarine. That's, that's what's being set up, as you said, Melanie. And then all of a sudden, Susan's dead. <laughs> and the submarine plot and all the characters that were introduced associated with that plot are gone. They're just, no one talks about it anymore. And those characters never reappear. And so now, as the movie exists, that whole submarine plot is a very elaborate way to explain why Tom is working for Bryce. It's, again, another device to get Tom into Bryce's office working as, as his aide. And if you ask me, that's a colossal waste of screen time. Just have him appointed as Bryce's aide. You know? on, I mean, the whole reason he's there, there there's a scene, oh, it's probably 20 minutes in, I might even be close. It might even be close like to 30 minutes or, or even um, 40 minutes where Bryce says to Pritchard, uh, you've got a friend, right? Who's in the, in the Navy and he's really clever. Get him in the office. That's all we needed. And presto magico, the really clever friend shows up, right? That would have just saved a whole lot of screen time. The other thing that confused me is I don't know exactly what's at stake for Tom if Bryce and Scott find out that he is one of Susan's boyfriends. Now, Melanie, when I was listening to you, I, I could have missed this. I watched it a couple of times, but I will admit my attention wandered. <laughs> so I might have missed this. You might be right on this. I didn't get the sense that anyone really thought that Yuri was a real person. I also didn't get the sense that if and when Pritchard and Bryce saw that Tom was the one in the picture, that anyone would think Tom was this pretend Russian spy that no one really believed was in existence anyway. They would go, oh my God, Tom is the boyfriend. Tom, the military hero, not Tom, you know, like they wouldn't make the leap that Tom is now Yuri. So I didn't get it. Oh, okay. So I just, I think that's just one of those paranoia things, right, in intelligence agencies. So it's, and I agree, like it was a fabricate, like there's this ghost 
spy of Yuri that they're trying to create this story that gets Bryce off. And I think it's not very well done or very well executed, but the fact then that Tom is Yuri at the end means that he wasn't a phantom. See, there was see that's the weird thing. Because when it's finally revealed that he is a Russian spy, I was kind of like, eh, <laughs> so what? <laughs> right, it would have been far more interesting if he had been uh, set up as the murderer. Like the mm. stakes were much higher. The way the movie is set up, Tom being found out as the boyfriend equals Tom as the murderer was a much more likely conclusion for the characters to come to. And it had high stakes, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Because now he's the scapegoat. But Tom as the boyfriend equals Tom as the Russian spy. It's, it was like, because the whole phantom submarine plot evaporated, <laughs> yeah. then the stakes around that part evaporated with it. Yes. No, so I agree. So that when the big reveal comes that he actually is the Russian spy, it's like, mm, so what? <laughs> I might have bought yeah. it in 1987. I might well, have see, thought this was great. I, I can't remember. I think I, I remember buying it and going, wow. You know, in ninety, you know, well, I don't think I saw it in eighty-seven. I saw it a few years after that. But yes, I thought that was it, it. Was a really like he's so engrossed in the action of it, and in like, and again, in subsequent viewings, some of it just completely makes no sense. Like, but I think this is the beauty of the conflict triangles that you're talking about, mm, because yes. it, that's what attracts our attention. And, and so all does. of these other little hiccupy things, we just go with it. We roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. And in the first viewing, you are really caught up in just how um, interconnected that conflict is and how, like you said, one thing shifts and everything kind of follows on and shifts. And I think that's, you know, that's why I chose this movie, not because it's a fantastic spy movie. <laughs> but, yeah, but that's and it just it, it keeps you engaged at that first viewing level until you, especially when it came out because it was a novelty, whereas now we're a bit more sophisticated in plots and a few other things. It doesn't, it doesn't present as big a puzzle as what it did when it first came out. Yeah. And we anyway. watch a lot more movies now because we yeah. can watch them on our phone if we want. Yeah. You know, going to the movie in 1987 was a big deal. And you went and you watched it once and then that's it. You couldn't see it anymore. Yeah. Until yeah, whenever right. VHS came out, whatever yeah. that was. <laughs> that's Do you know right. what I mean? So, yeah, so this is something that's really important for us to remember because we're it, it might have worked in the 80s or the mm. 70s or even the 90s. But audiences are much more sophisticated now. So you've got to write to the person who's going to read your story now. Yeah. And if you want to use this twist that the guy is really the spy, think out, think about the fact that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stories just like No Way Out that your reader or viewer has already consumed. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be watching the movie thinking, oh, I wonder if he's the spy. Yeah. Because they've seen it now, right? Yeah. Like in 87, maybe we didn't see this before. I, I certainly wouldn't have because I was only 17. But, but you know, it's more common now. So this is a really important thing for us to keep in mind. Even if a story worked well when it first came out, a lot has happened. Like even in Indiana Jones, 
the very first movie where, you know, the ball is rolling down the thing. Now it's yep. iconic. Well, I remember talking to my daughter and she's like, yeah, I don't get it. I'm like, well, at the time it was really awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Or some yep. of the special, like an alien, the alien coming out of John Hurt's chest. Yes. I mean, Avery thought that was hilarious. She said, mom, it's a sock on a golf club. And it is. When you look at it again, it's like, oh, you're just, it's a sock on a golf club. But at the time, yes. it was terrifying. It and, was. Right? So Avery at 20 is a much more sophisticated moviegoer and book reader than even I was at 20 because mm -hmm. she has a lot more to absorb and digest and a lot more stories to be exposed to. So that's a really important thing for us to keep in mind. It mm -hmm. makes our job uh, more challenging, but also more fun. More interesting, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we've got to dig deep and, and really be creative. Mm. So um, anyway, all of this to say that the characters in No Way Out are actually plot devices. And because of that, they're all flat. Well, you know, Bryce is more interesting but that could be because of Gene Hackman's acting skill. Uh, I didn't go back and do an analysis of Bryce because I was bored <laughs> by then. I didn't want to watch the movie again. <laughs> so if you're writing a movie like this, where like a like a, an action story or a thriller or the, the type of story where your character doesn't have an arc, when you're developing your cast you've got to make sure that all of the supporting cast members serve the plot in some way. They got to earn their place in your story. Even if it's as a red herring, they've got to earn their place in your story. All right, Melanie, that's enough out of me. Um, what's the action step for today? All right. The action step for today is that I want you to go through your cast list and identify as many conflict triangles as possible. Identify places where you can add them or enhance them and then notice how this will impact not only the plot of your story but the development of your protagonist and your supporting cast. And that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss Little Women. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on X, Instagram, and threads at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to get Melanie's tips about books to help you read like a writer, visit Melanie on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill author and find out more about her at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm -hmm.